On today's show, our guest is Vincent Aiello, callsign Jello. Vincent enjoyed a long and distinguished career in the United States Navy as a fighter pilot. He's qualified on the F-18, the Super Hornet, the F-16 Fighting Falcon, the A-4 Skyhawk, and many more aircraft types. Vincent was deployed several times on various different aircraft carriers and saw operational service in the skies over Iraq during Southern Watch in the late 1990s, and later on, after the wars kicked off in Iraq in the mid-2000s as well. Vincent passed his Top Gun course early on in his career and became a Top Gun instructor. And after his instructor tour had ended, he was lucky enough to head back to the fleet and share his knowledge and pass along all that he'd learnt to the up-and-coming pilots of the fleet. Towards the end of his career, he flew the F-16 in the Navy's adversary squadron and talks fondly of the F-16, but says the F-18 is his first love. The military has a great way of amplifying everything that it means to go all in. And when you throw in something as elite as Top Gun, the mindset and the habits that are formed by the individuals that participate in these courses is truly life-changing and it's very, very inspirational. I'm excited he's here and I know that you're going to learn something from his amazing story. So please help me in welcoming Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass and this is the Go All In podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, good day, Vincent. Great to have you here, mate. Great to be here, Robert. Thank you. All right, I'd like to start off all of my shows with a quick get-to-know-you quiz. It helps warm us up a little bit. It calms the nerves down as well. And the people that know you that are listening might get to learn something about you that they don't already know. You ready? Sure thing. All right, man. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, it's in no particular order, and it's a little bit random as well. So the first one is, do you prefer close air support sorties or BFM? Ooh, boy, the first thing that comes to mind, probably the close air support bit more complex? Well, there's a bit more results, immediate feedback. Either you're on time or you're not. Either your bombs are on target or they're not. So many times in BFM, with another F-18 especially, you end up in this neutral Luffberry on the deck, you know, that lowest altitude you're allowed to go in training, where you're just stagnant and neutral and nobody really comes out the winner. But in close air support, you know, you feel like you're making a difference for someone on the ground and it's a timing problem. It's more of a puzzle to solve than a gladiator fight. Nice, nice. All right. Carrier landings by day or by night? Oh, for heaven's sakes. Do you have to ask? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'll seeing take... how much of a sadist you really are. Oh, well, not very much. I'll take daytime anytime. And I certainly wouldn't mind going back out to the carrier with enough training, but never at night. I didn't want to do that even halfway through my career, but I had to anyway. <laughs> All right. Airliners or fighters? Oh, gosh. Oh, actually, you know what? I almost answered quickly and then had to screen myself. I mean, yeah, fighters. I, I have an airline job now, as you know, and I hope I'm doing a good job for them. So hopefully they won't take it the wrong way if they come in second, but it's no comparison. It's like taking an indie you know, or a Formula One driver and making them drive the city bus. It's no different. <laughs> All right. Tail draggers or tricycle undercarriage planes? Never flown a tail dragger, so I'd have to go with the tricycle. No way. Of all the planes that you've flown, you never flew a tail dragger. 
Never have. You know, my civilian experience is fairly limited. I've flown a handful of little Cessna type planes. Mm-hmm. I was in a couple flying clubs for a time that had earlier models of the T-34 Mentor that I first flew. The one I flew was the C model with a turbo jet engine, turboprop. But the B model was a piston engine, very similar body, but the older engine and they were relegated to the flying clubs. And so they were a little bit more affordable to fly. They were a lot of fun, but no, never a tail dragger. Nice, nice. Can you play an instrument other than a hotas? Trumpet. Trumpet. Can you sing? Not out of the shower. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to ask you a really, really super loaded question. We're almost at the end of the quiz here. What's the biggest fish that you've ever caught when you've been fly fishing? Probably about a 30-inch trout not far from Fresno, California in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Either that or a steelhead up in Northern California, which was probably also pretty close to 30 inches. Nice. What type of motorcycles do you prefer? Do you prefer jet bikes or cruisers? Neither. How about sport bikes? Yeah, jet bikes. That's what Aussies call them, yeah? Japanese bikes. Okay. So have you got a sports bike at the moment? I do, actually. I have a 2006 Yamaha YZF R1. At the time, they only made 500 of this particular model. Mm -hmm. And my brother worked for Yamaha and he was able to get me number 207. It's still in my garage downstairs. Very nice. Otherwise known as a missile on wheels, those things, right? It's as close as I can get to flying a fighter with being stuck on their ground. Yes. I've got a question about that coming up. Don't worry. Last question. All right. So if you could go back in time for 10 minutes and talk to anybody and visit anybody, what would you say to them? Never been asked that one. 10 minutes back in time. Oh gosh, you put me on the spot. You know, there's so many, I I was tempted to go back and say, I'd go back and speak to Jesus, maybe (laughs) go back and speak to some world war two names, maybe Winston Churchill or even Hitler, frankly, would be kind of interesting, but gosh, Robert, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that one. (laughs) You You might have to give me more time. Maybe I'll have to come back to that at the end of the interview. I've got one for you. I'd go back and spend 10 minutes with Hitler and I'd ring his neck. At about (laughs) what do you reckon? Well, you know what? The world as we know it today would be a different place. So we have to be careful pretending to change history, right? (laughs) Well, thanks for sharing that with us, mate. It's a little bit of fun to kick us all off. Will people come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone in? So if you could, please, Vincent, could you share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? So I've given this some thought, Robert, because I could start at the beginning as far as when my stepfather asked me one day, what do I want to do when I grow up? And I decided I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And from that moment on, I worked hard in school. And, you know, if you ever watch these movies like the Rocky series, right, there's that montage of music and the guys working out and getting ready. You know, it's like (laughs) I had a real life one of those for a couple of years and actually made it, which was great. And then in flight school, you had to try hard, which is great. I've had a few landings on carriers at night off the coast of Australia, frankly, where if you don't go all in, you're going all home and probably Mm. in a casket, frankly. And so there wasn't much choice there. I don't don't think that's a valid answer because you either make it happen or you die. But I think having ruminated on this, I would say as a Top Gun instructor, I went all in on both my first, but especially my second lecture or subject matter expertise area that comes to mind. Because as I mentioned on my show, on episode seven with my guest Grand, when you are a Top Gun instructor, that is what you are doing. You know, the families, thankfully, are very generous 
understanding that this is what you have to do. And you are absolutely committed to that. And you make time where you can for your family. But when you are a Top Gun instructor, you can't do it part-time. You can't do it half rear end. And so you have to go all in. And when you are in the murder board process, preparing to instruct on your area of expertise, you have to know it so well that you can stand up there for hours and teach as if you know it as well as you know anything. And by the end of that murder board process, you really do. So just for the listeners that don't know what a murder board is for us military guys, we know what that is. Can you just explain that for us? You bet. So when you become a Top Gun instructor, you are given, as I said, an area or two of expertise. And you are expected to be the Navy's, United States Navy's, subject matter expert on that. You know it as well as anything. You know the connections for what is being developed, perhaps, if it's a system or if it's a threat. You know all the different agencies that are collecting. And you go to, I had a chance to go to the Paris Air Show in the early 2000s to work on one of my lectures. And so it is an event where you obtain as much knowledge and connections and networking as you possibly can. And then with the help of your former staff mates at Top Gun, you distill all that information into anywhere from an hour and a half to a four and a half hour lecture where you are instructing the next generation of Top Gun students on that expertise area. And so the common mistake a lot of us make when we are new and you have all this information and it's so exciting is you want to tell it all. And in fact, you have to distill it to what do they need to know and you have to teach it in a manner that they learn it. And so the aptly named murder board process is the process of taking a gigantic lump of clay, which is you and your newfound expertise and molding it, shaping it, whittling it down to a beautiful piece of pottery, I don't know, coffee mug maybe, where you are then as efficient as possible giving that information to the students and only what needs to be said and nothing more but nothing less is provided in as a distraction-free environment as you can give it where you're not you know, taken to extreme picking your nose and you're not scratching parts of your body, but even down to how you hold your hands, how you hold the pointer, how you click the mouse for the next slide on the PowerPoint, how you address people, how you answer questions, your posture, your ums and ahs, everything is nitnoided so that when you get done and you have been murdered through the process, <laughs> the day you give your lecture, it is as perfect as any presentation has ever been in the history of people giving presentations on a stage. I want to back up just a little bit as well. I was very, very fortunate in my military career as well to be in a training establishment, not Top Gun, of course, but I was lucky enough to be posted to the parachute school for the Australian Army. And I can remember marching into that school and thinking, oh my gosh, the people here are so damn experienced and they're so skilled at what they do. And you would watch them in front of a class, they would be giving instruction and they seem really, really good at it. The military has a really good process and a really good way of getting you to be extremely competent at things in a short space of time. How long did it take you to get to that process and get to the other side of the murder board? Is that the whole Top Gun course, the whole three, four months that you're there, or is it longer than that? Well, I'll answer that second part first. So when you go through the course, you are going through as a student, learning the information and the abilities, techniques, tactics to execute the airplane to then go on and be that subject matter expert in strike fighter aviation in the United States Navy. So that is a 12-week course, 
And we do talk about that in my episode. We'll talk about my podcast, I'm sure, later. Mm-hmm. When you are done with a class, you wear the patch and you stay as an instructor, then depending on what the needs of the cadre or the staff are at the time, you may go straight to your murder board or you may go straight to learning some of the flying sides of things where you are now teaching those students that come through the next class. In my case, I did a little of both. So to answer your first question, how long did it take? I would answer you, Robert, my whole life. Because what I mean by that is, as you know, children learn very quickly at a young age. And then, of course, we make our way through the different schools. And then as a young adult, you're constantly learning. You might respond to something a certain way and someone might correct you, whether it's a spouse or a loved one or your mother or in the case of Top Gun, your fellow instructors. And so it's a very steep learning curve. You are applying everything that makes you who you are, but then fine tuning it to that razor sharp edge of being just as good as you can, because there's only so much you can change in a person. But as long as they have the willingness to learn and improve, you can fix the ums and ahs. You can't change the color of their hair or the way they stand to a degree, or even this color of their skin, which really doesn't matter anyway but you can change the way they hold their hands. You can change the way they address someone when they ask a question. And so all of that gets fine tuned and everything you are up until that moment just gets honed to a point where you are the best of who you can be. And I'll tell you one final thing before I stop talking is you're never the same after that. I remember going later to other presentations and I could not resist myself from saying, oh my goodness, if you would just stop doing this or start doing that or why do your PowerPoint slides have animations and oh you know it's difficult so you're forever ruined once you've been a Top Gun instructor at least I certainly was. I know the feeling in the military for those folks listening that have never been in the military you do so many presentations and it's always death by PowerPoint for some reason instructors think that that's a a really really effective way of delivering a message and sure it's a supporting way of doing it but it's not always the best way to deliver the message. And I feel your pain, man. I know exactly what that feels like. What was your subject in the end? Can I ask that? Yes, you can. My first subject was threat aircraft, which is why I was able to go to the Paris Air Show. Very nice. And that was a lot of fun. I found that I enjoyed that very much. And my second one was strike fighter missions, meaning the different missions, mainly air to air, but combined air to air and air to surface that the F-18 flies. And at the time, it was the Super Hornet coming online and the F-14 was beginning to sundown, but I knew all three. And that particular lecture, my second time going through the murder board process, getting back to your original question, Robert, was my go all in moment, if you will. When I finished that murder board, I'm not going to stand here and say it was perfect because certainly we had plenty to debrief. But on my first murder board, I ended up getting a slide ahead and I started talking about something that wasn't on the slide. And thankfully on the next slide, I had something to point to anyway. And when I went to point, I realized I was on the wrong slide. And I paused a moment. I composed myself. I didn't make a big deal about it. You don't sigh and throw your hands up. You just kind of gain your composure and you figure out where you were and you cover anything you were supposed to have covered. And then you catch up to where you are and you keep going. And I just remember being disappointed in the debrief when they said, hey, Jello, you handled that well, but you know it's too bad that it happened. And you know when you work that hard for something, you're going to be disappointed. Well, getting back to my point on the second one, that did not happen. I won't say it was perfect, but for me, Vincent Aiello, getting back to what I said about the culmination of mine, that was as good as I'll ever be at anything. I think at the best of my abilities, 
I don't remember peeking at the slides. I don't remember stammering too much. I remember it being pretty darn good by my personal standards. And that was a glorious feeling when you've worked that hard, I'll tell you. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's a great story. It's something that people listening probably didn't think that a Top Gun instructor would say. You're probably thinking something more practical about airplanes and fighting a thing, but you're talking about delivering a presentation as the go-all-in moment. How do you think that that can transfer to somebody in their everyday life? I mean, going all in is a mindset. It's a commitment. It's you deciding to give your very best to the world. And I feel like when you give your best to the world and you go all in on stuff, you're living up to your true potential. And going through a process like a murder board or on a course like that is something really, really hard. How do you think that people, just regular people, not in the military, not in those circumstances, can use those things that you're talking about in their daily lives? You know, Robert, I think it translates in two ways. And the first is maybe a little counter to what you might think. And that is, first off, you got to make sure it's a worthy subject. In other words, not everything you do, we all know this, needs to be the 110% go all in, grit your teeth. (laughs) All that, right? I mean, speaking of teeth, if you brush your teeth too vigorously, you can cause premature receding on your gums. And I'm not a dentist, but I've been told this. So, you know, you got to go easy. So I don't think everything we do, and I hope I don't uh, lose you or your audience here, needs for us to go all in. But the second side of that, the other side of the coin is, man, when it matters, when there is something, whether it's a marriage or a murder board or whatever it is, if it is worthy then I think it applies in a couple ways. Number one, you be proactive, like I did with my wife, which is, hey, honey, I think I'd like to go to be the Top Gun because I think that could make for me the best possible career after. And people who do that, it changes their life. It's amazing. And so I had her support, which was important. We did not have children at the time, although we had our first child at Top Gun. And so that was interesting. But I think it's also gaining the buy-in of the people whose lives you affect because when you go all in, sometimes other things don't get as much of your attention. So if you have young children, then that can be a challenge and you have to weigh that. Every family is different. Top Gun, for example, is not for everyone. It's for those who can figure out a way to make that balance. And in your own life, whatever it may be, I think you have to say, is this suitable for my situation? hey, look at the Joneses across the street. They're doing it. Well, that's great for them, but it might not be great for me because my life, my family is different than theirs. If you can pass that test, then my follow-on to that is that you figure out what it takes to go all in, as you put it. Whatever it takes to be successful, to reach success, to achieve your goal, how do I get from where I am to where that is? And then you do it. And you do it with the utmost of your ability. I'll tell you another thing. When I was just coming back from Japan, I had enrolled in a master's program on the side. And there came a time where I was in two classes at once and they were both very busy. And I told my wife, I said, look, I will help you as much as I can. But for right now, this short season of my life, again, using your term, I am all in on this. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to study. Then I'll help you as much with the kids as I can before I have to go to work. And then when I get home, I'll play with them for a few minutes because I want them to know that dad is here and he cares because I've been gone a lot. And then I'm going to tell them I need to sneak away and study. I'll come back out for dinner. I'll help with bath time, but I've come back, you know. And so for a period of time, I was all in and there was a cost to my to the people. But it takes being deliberate. It takes being proactive. You have to maybe get a day planner and write out when you're going to do certain things to achieve that goal. It takes cutting out other things 
maybe I like watching TV. Well, guess what? Right now, if I'm in a master's program or I'm in a murder board, maybe TV is no longer important. And personally, I don't like to watch TV. So that, that was an easy one, but I know a lot of people do. Maybe I like to play golf. Maybe I like to fish. Maybe I like to exercise. You should still exercise, by the way, when you're all in on something because that affects your health and stamina. But I think it comes down to figuring out what's worthy, getting the support of the people whose lives you impact on a daily basis, and then figuring out what success looks like in your situation and mapping out the path to do it, and then committing yourself to that path. It's really, really wonderful feedback, mate. Thank you for sharing that. It's something that's applicable. Obviously, I can hear the debriefing tone in the instructor's voice there. I can hear that, you know, it's figuring out where you are, where you want to be and what you've got to do to bridge those gaps. But it's applicable in aviation and it's applicable in so many different aspects of life as well. And I would agree with you completely that you don't have to go all in on everything. It's like an extreme version of a personality that just doesn't really get you anywhere. Tell me about your support network at Top Gun, going through a course like that and then being an instructor post-course. You can't do that stuff by yourself. Tell me about your mates there, how they supported you and how you worked together to achieve those big giant goals because that would have been really hard. Oh yeah, Robert. And I'm guessing you said you did some military time as well. You probably did a boot camp type experience. Yeah. And anytime you are in something traumatic or excessively demanding and difficult, you tend to bond with the people that you go through it with. And that is certainly the case with Top Gun as well. I am in touch with three out of the four classmates that I went through with. And the only reason I'm not with the other one is I just simply lost track of where he went. But I still speak with the others that we all stayed on the staff together. And everyone who I was an instructor with, if you know I bump into them or if they happen to be in town and they look me up, I'm happy to buy them a refreshment. And we reminisce, we bond, we have those connections from experiences that not everybody gets to do. So to answer your question, it is a gigantic support network because number one, you have your fellow instructors who have all been through or are going through the same thing. And while there can be some competition, you know, that's big personalities, it's big egos, it's everybody wants to be the best, but I would say it's more like coopetition. In other words, hey, I'm going to help my three classmates, but in the end, I'd like to do better but I'm not going to step on them to get there. Right. So we we help each other out. And if somebody has got to be best, yeah, sure. I guess I'd like it to be me, but I'm not going to claw my way or backstab my way to get there. And then of course you've got the entire staff of civilians and the other members on the base that help out Top Gun as well as its parent organization that it belongs to. Top Gun is not its own command. And then of course you've got the spouses and I'll say wives because for the most part it is, but it's really, you know, the spouses or wives that, they bond together because they don't get much from their husbands. So they have to look to each other to help with play dates for the kids or whatever. And especially when one is pregnant, the others come around and really help. And there's a huge network there as well. And everybody just knows this is a period of time, two or three years where you're going to really work your tail off and you just accept it because part of the honor of being a Top Gun instructor is knowing that you went through that. I mean, if it was easy, they would just give it to anyone, right? Mm. Part of the honor, I presume, of being a PhD is the knowledge that those people are in their equivalent areas, experts at what they do, and they've done their theses or whatever. And so you don't just do something partly and get those honors. It means something to be a PhD, and it certainly means something to be a Top Gun instructor as well. So a huge support network on all sides. A band of brothers and a band of sisters in the military is something that is cherished. 
And those For lifelong sure. friendships that you develop are really, really wonderful. So everyone thinks of a Top Gun instructor as something a little bit stereotypical. I'm not making any movie references whatsoever because it's too tempting. <laughs> I'm not going to go there at all. But in aviation, like in many professions, maybe a little bit more in aviation, it can be a very, very humbling experience. And I'm interested to ask a question about the first 1v1 sortie that you did when you were at Top Gun as a brand new baby student and you got your ass handed to you. Was That must have been really humbling for you, right? Extremely so. But I don't know of too many students who go to Top Gun thinking they're going to be the ace of the base because the reputation of the instructors is such that there's nobody better than them. Yeah. And so, yeah, to answer your question, a good friend of mine lives up the road here, Sprout Emmons. He denies this, but I remember this because it was traumatic. So Fallon, Nevada, where Top Gun is, is in the high desert. The field itself is at 4,000 feet. So you have to be 5,000 feet above that. And the air starts to get thin. So Top Gun classes routinely go on BFM debts or detachments. We were lucky in my class to go to Key West, Florida, which is gorgeous. But of course, I was working so hard, I didn't barely get a chance to go out. But I don't remember my very first flight, but I remember get, trying to get through defensive BFM, which is simply a part task training, like as if someone said to a baseball player, I'm going to throw you nothing but fastballs for the next 10 pitches, right? So you know it's coming. Well, in this particular case, they say, hey, look, you're going to start with a guy behind you, and you're going to try to neutralize him. Well, Robert, I went through this flight, I want to say five times. And each time I got a little better, but I'd make a new mistake, you know, and something that I hadn't made a mistake in before. And I remember Sprout is his call sign, sitting me down. I can picture the debriefing room and everything. And he goes, Jello, you're really close. You're still not quite there, but I think we're going to move you on and we'll work on you when you get to the staff, <laughs> which was relieving, but also a little bit frustrating too, because there's that moment of rats, you know, I'm just not quite good enough. And yes, that is, I won't say humiliating, but you certainly eat a lot of humble pie when you go through Top Gun and certainly when you stay as an instructor too, because you're never done learning. Yeah, I think once you get qualified to do something in the military, it's like a license to learn and you quickly realize how much other people know more. And I can remember, you know, again, it's not really a comparison to flying jets, but it's the same training mentality. I can remember learning how in my military freefall course, jumping out of airplanes and um, kind of thinking that I've got the hang of it and they let you out there by yourself and then suddenly you're jumping with and these instructors just move around the sky like it's nothing man like they're walking around on the ground and I'm like skating here and skating there and it's like man I'm never going to get there but I also recall an instructor saying to me listen Rob you know you're not quite there mate but we're just going to move on to the next jump and we think that you'll catch up you've got the skill and the right mindset and the right attitude you'll be right and, and it certainly is very very humbling for sure right Oh, yes. Well, you, no pun intended, Robert, but you'll catch up all right. Everyone ends up on the ground one way or the other in your profession. One way, but. One way or the other, absolutely. <laughs> I wanted to ask some questions about flying fast jets and F-18s and fighter jets and all that type of thing. Obviously, there's an incredible amount of power and thrust that you have flying a fighter jet and there's incredible acceleration. But one of the things that I haven't heard you talk about yet is what it feels like on a cat shot. Well, cat shots are fun, and I say that because really, once you get the preparatory motions set up, you are just along for the ride. I mean, the <laughs> last thing you do is go to full throttle, you wipe out the controls, and you check all your instruments, and as long as everything's good, in the daytime you salute, at night you turn on the lights, and at that point on, you're just sitting waiting. 
someone pushes the button and the next thing you know, you're going hurling into space. And then at the end, then you go flying. And at that point, you're back in control. But other than that, you're just hanging on. But I want to say someone told me it was about four G's of, I forget if it's the lateral uh, dimension there, but you know, it's pushing you from your chest to your back, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like it makes you gray out or it's that painful, but it certainly pushes you back in your seat. And it's a lot of fun. I remember my first one. I remember I was in an A4 Skyhawk on the USS Carl Vinson off the coast of San Diego in July, 1995. And I thought, okay, this will be fun. You know, cause you get on a roller coaster and some of them start with a little bit of a sudden acceleration. It was nothing like it. It, it was surprising. And the next thing I knew, I was in the air and I said, oh, crud, I better start flying this airplane. And it, it was exciting. What about in an F-18? Because an F-18 cat shots hands off, right? You've got your hand on right. the throttle, you put it to full throttle, then you take your hand off the controls. Did you put it on your knee or did you hold the handle that was up on the canopy or what did you do? Both. They teach everyone to put their hand up on the canopy and, and that works just fine. After a while, I just put my hand on my knee because it was just closer and easier. And once you get off the flight deck, then you just touch the stick and off you go. But yes, you do keep the left hand on the throttles just so they don't creep back accidentally. And you just keep your hands off the throttles because the flight controls in an F-18 are designed to capture a certain angle of attack after it rotates. And that is optimal for flying away. So you can actually inject some errors into the F-18 if you start inputting things too early or right off the catapult. So they say the best thing is to let George, as we call the autopilot, fly it. And then a moment or two later, by the time you get your wits back after the catapult shot, then you you jump on the controls and start flying it at that point. Raise the landing gear and uh, go on your way. Does it feel different doing it at nighttime than daytime because your, your spatial reference is different? Because you can't see the horizon at nighttime out at sea on a dark night. Correct. Yes, it does. It feels very different. So in the daytime, you have the peripheral vision and that can usually overcome any sensations your ears might be trying to confuse your brain with. At night, especially if you're up on the bow, even though if you come off the waist, it's only a moment longer, but on the bow, you get hurled right into that darkness. If it's overcast, no cultural lighting, no stars, no moon. Sometimes your ears will tell you you're sideways or upside down and, and you can't believe them. You've got to trust your instruments and take a deep breath and let the airplane fly a little bit and then off you go. And sometimes, you know, if it's light enough, you might see aircraft take off and their landing gear are still down for a little while. Yeah. And sometimes you see the afterburners on a little longer than maybe they should. And that's just someone just trying to get away from the water and trying to find some comfort and safety and altitude. And it's, it's definitely a different story at night. I just need to take a moment here. I'll keep the power on just a tiny second longer or two, right? That's right. <laughs> Tell me when I see a video of a catapult shot, as the aircraft leaves the bow of the ship or the end of the catapult and the plane comes off the end of the shuttle, there's often like a big clunk and the pilot kind of heads forward like that. Is that the launch bar coming up and the landing gear extending as the weight off the landing gear comes at the same time? I always wanted to know that. No, actually that is the sudden stopping of the acceleration. In other words, up until the moment you leave the catapult, you are continually accelerating. So once you stop accelerating, the result on the human body is almost like a deceleration. And that's when you come forward in your straps and move forward like that. Is that yep. something that takes getting used to or does it just happen so quickly you don't even notice? You know, I don't remember ever thinking much about it or having ready room discussions about it. So I don't think it was a big issue. And you've got over 700 carrier traps? I do, yes. That's a lot, right? 
It's a lot. Uh, certainly there are people with more. A friend of mine just retired and he had over a thousand as an air wing commander, mm -hmm. but some people have fewer. So I don't measure myself by the number. I'm happy that I was able to have many. And just the way my career went, I ended up with, I believe it was 705. And also I should probably add about 30 bolters, which is where you attended the land, but missed all the wires. I think it's a really interesting statistic to measure by. I remember when I was at the parachute school, there was guys that had like three and 4,000 jumps. And it meant that they'd been in an airplane that had taken off three, they, obviously they didn't land in a plane, but they'd taken off three or 4,000 times in an airplane. And it's really incredible. And it's a testament to the modern day machinery that we have. Did you ever get off a ship and then have problems with your aircraft? I mean, flying for as long as you did, did you ever have an emergency out at sea and come back to a carrier with an engine failure or anything like that? You know, I don't remember landing single engine and that's an indictment on my memory because <laughs> if I had one, it would have been, I would hope, a little more exciting. I'm pretty sure I had one where the engine was suspect and I left it at idle, but it was still producing some thrust. I don't ever remember single engine. So I've certainly had my share of emergencies and I even had a self-created emergency that I talked about once on a different podcast I was fortunate to be a guest on. And that was where I simply just could not land. I was relatively new. I was having what they call your night in the barrel. And it was at night. And my skills at the time were just such that I was unable physically to get aboard the ship. They even sent me up to the tanker for more fuel. I came back and subconsciously thought, okay, I don't want to bolter and miss all the wires anymore. So I better go low. And of course, the danger in that is you hit the back of the ship and explode. So the landing signal officers were having none of that. And they sent me home. I ended up on the beach that night with a perfectly good airplane, but a perfectly damaged uh, ego. ego, frankly. Yep. And I was able to go back out the next day. And, you know, they, they worked with me and I got better. But what was it? Is it in your head? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's in, it's in your head. At that time, I might have had 30 total landings on a carrier. And you just get to a point where, I don't know, I think it's the same as when people start something new and they get better quickly, but then they plateau. I bet I was in that plateau. You start thinking you're better. I'm not quite sure what the psychological response is or just the human response. But on that particular night, I just wasn't good enough. And thankfully, I won't say I never bolted again. I certainly did, but I never had another night quite like that. And in fact, the happy ending was that different times later in my career, I actually was good enough to be distinguished as one of the top 10 in the entire air wing of over 100 pilots. So, you know, people learn and sometimes they learn the hard way, certainly in my case. Yeah, it's never a smooth ride, is it? People don't just arrive at the top and being the best of everything. You forget that it's rocky and it's hard and everybody has struggles and they have to fight their way there as well. And for me, that's the goal in mentality as well. You know, you just got to keep pushing, keep going forward and, and make it happen for yourself, right? Absolutely. I will say, though, that there always seemed to be someone in my lifetime who made it look easy. And you love them, but you hate them, right? Because <laughs> There's you know, always someone better, man, no matter what yeah, it is. No matter what it yep. is. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and in, in the case of military aviation, sometimes there was just the guys that were the full deal, the good looking, well built, fly real well, never have trouble <laughs> landing on the carrier. And just, you know, I was like, I hate you, but how do you do it? You know, so, but no, nah, it's fine. And who knows? I rarely ever told anybody that I re regarded them in that way. And maybe I just now realized for the first time ever in my life, Robert, maybe in some way, at some point in my life, I had that impression on someone else. I doubt it, but maybe <laughs> it's fun to think. I'm sorry, mate. That's actually not the case. <laughs> I'll bring you right back down to earth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I assume that to be the case, but I'm, I'm hopeful. 
I'm holding out hope. I wanted to just shift gears a little bit here and talk about interoperability. And you mentioned that you'd been off the coast of Australia, off the east coast of Australia, I'm assuming, probably on a tandem thrust exercise at some point. And I was just wondering what your experience was working with the Australian Defence Force and the RAAF, et cetera. Oh, you guys are awesome. I uh, consider you brothers from another mother. And, you know, we have a strange accent as how I'll say it instead of saying that you do. <laughs> but, you know, actually, to correct you, we were off the coast of Western Australia. On off our way to, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on our way to Perth for a port visit, which was fantastic. I, to me, it feels a lot like San Diego. Yeah. And we were just flying just for no other good reason than it's important to fly in all conditions. And so I have also been involved in Talisman Sabre, which is an exercise the Aussies and the Americans do together. And so, you know, as with any country and even the, the us Americans, I mean, you have some that are better, some that are worse, like we just talked about. But I never saw anybody that I thought, oh, gosh, you know, he ruins it for all Aussies. I, I thought you guys were fantastic. And we have been shoulder to shoulder for what, 70 or 80 years, at least since World War II. And probably be on that. Yep. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, you guys are, are, are rock solid. There was a uh, hundred years, a little bit longer, hundred years of mateship between Australia and the US recently, sure. all out in the okay. media, our defense forces and whatnot, which is, is really cool. So it's a pleasure for me to be sharing this with you as well. I've, I've had huge amounts of experience with the United States military. I was in the Navy for quite some time as well and over in the Arabian Gulf. And we were obviously working with the Americans. I was on a guided missile frigate, which was the ships that we had at the time have a low draft, so it lets us go right up against the, the coast in the 11-mile exclusion zone there. And we were there, I think I was there in probably before you in 1996, and that was when we were enforcing the, the sanctions, and you were there shortly after, I think, doing the no-fly zone stuff. Is that right? Uh, yep. My first deployment was in 1997 on George Washington, and I went back to the Gulf many times after that. But Yep. Uh, late 90s doing Operation Southern Watch, mainly over southern Iraq. Yeah, I can remember sitting up against aircraft carriers there doing plane guard and watching the aircraft launch and they'd go out with bombs and they'd come on back with bombs. So they were doing their job and it was doing what it's supposed to do. And we were doing a lot of maritime interception operations at the time there. And we would come in to do a plane guard for you guys as a bit of a rest the tempo oh. of our operations was pretty high. There was a, a lot of ships coming in and out of that waterway in Iraq, and we would be oh, yeah. policing that system there. But we never found anything. Never, there was never anything bad there. You'd kind of burst over the horizon at you know 20 knots and launch a helicopter and fast rope onto these boats. And the most illegal thing they had on there was like a Mars bar wrapper from 10 years ago. You know, like the sanctions really did work, and it was pretty <laughs> crippling to their economy. Yes, that's true. When I left the ADF at the tail end of my career, there was a lot of legacy equipment in and around the military. And I remember seeing a report shortly after I got out, and they were saying that every single platform in the Australian Defence Force was going to be swapped out and replaced. And over time, that's happened, and it's subsequently still happening over you know, a period of time, military's update and upgrade. Now that you're out of the military, and we're in the age of network-centric warfare and complete battle space and spectrum dominance... Do you wish that you held on a little bit longer for maybe a joint strike fighter seat or some drone tech or something different that was over the horizon? Or were you done with it? Well, yes and no. And I know that's a cop-out answer. So yes, because it's amazing to watch the technology and the capabilities these new aircraft have. And to be a part of that, be a part of something special with a new airplane is fantastic. That being said, the longer I stayed in, because tactics change, as you can imagine, as we... Mm -hmm 
earn new systems and missiles and learn more about the threat. I found it more and more difficult to keep up with the tactics because somewhere in my brain, I guess I thought, okay, is this the new thing or the old thing? And it was hard to keep it straight. And so I kind of, in a way, liked it a little simpler back in the, hey, here's all you do. And, you know, you either do it or you don't. And, and Generation four like, is easy, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the easy stuff, you know, just, just an iPod and not an actual phone and camera and everything else, right? Yeah. So, I mean, also it does me no good, right, to say, oh, I wish I was still there because I can't change it. Hmm. There are some commercial jet squadrons, if you will, or companies that are looking for guys like me. And I've considered going back and still flying. But, you know, I don't cry over spilt milk. I'm glad for the career I've had. I'm glad for the opportunities that were presented to me. And somebody else is going to get a chance now at the F-35, just like I had a chance at the F-18. And I'm okay with that. That's good. You sounds like you made peace with it. I have, yes. So tell me, how long was your career in total? Was it 24, 25 years? Well, right in between the two. So I was commissioned in August of 1992. And my last day on active duty was February 28th of 2017. So about 24 years in six or seven months. So you haven't been out quite two years just yet. Leaving the the military is a difficult thing. I, I did nearly 10 years in two services and it's hard. It's hard to leave your job. It's hard to leave your friends. It's hard to leave the life behind. How's the transition going for you? Well, it's part of the reason I began a podcast, which again, I'm sure we'll get to in a moment to stay involved with it. You know, I knew it was coming. I actually failed at retiring the first time I tried in 2015, frankly, because to your point, I loved my career. I enjoyed the people and everything about it. I just, there was nothing else that gripped me. And when it was time to go, I could start seeing the writing on the wall. I couldn't find anything else I wanted to do. And so they had a job in the San Diego area where my wife and I decided to settle down. And so I took it and just punted, if you will. And then I was here a couple of years and I said, okay, you know, no more, no more faking it. I really need to move on to something else. And so for me, it came gradually and I had resigned myself to it. So it wasn't a shock. It wasn't like one day I woke up and said, what do you mean? I can't do this anymore. And so the transition has been bittersweet. I understand my career is over in the Navy and I enjoyed it thoroughly. And there are parts of it that I miss. There are parts of it that I do not, to be fair. But you still have the friendships. You still have the connections. You still have kinship with people like you, Robert, uh, who I'm glad to now count hmm. among that circle of people who have had those experiences. And you're never the same. When you go on to something else, you can always kind of look wistfully at a sunset or at clouds and know that there was a time when you used to do that. And maybe it's not your turn anymore but it doesn't take away from the glory of having done it at one time. My favorite part of a transition is, and it took me a long time. I think I came from a, maybe a slightly different version of the military than you, you know, as in aviation, it's different. I was a grunt, you know, and my last posting was at the parachute school. So as a training establishment, it's kind of pretty regimental and it's pretty kind of, you know, it's full on you're training people. It's really military and really army, so to speak. And so leaving that and going straight into the civilian world, into my own business was something that was a difficult transition. But after a couple of years, after a number of years, I found myself looking back on my career fondly and acknowledging it, but then looking forward and realizing how much more I've got to do. And that was exciting for me. 
So what's next for you? Tell me about your podcast. Tell me what's coming up. Tell me about the exciting things that are happening. <laughs> well, I recorded an episode today, actually, on board the USS Midway Museum. Fantastic. It's a carrier that is now right here in San Diego. Mm -hmm. So what's next for me? I am an airline pilot, and that is putting food on the table and getting me around the country and soon the world when I move up to a bigger airplane. And, you know, that, again, it's not the same as flying a fighter, but that's okay. I will be 48 this year. And it's okay to settle down. It's okay to slow down a little bit. And so, but what I am doing is I learned very early in my career in the Navy that there are many, many people out there, including, frankly, Robert, I have a lot of Aussies that reach out to me who love the show. But there are people around the world who, when they find out you are a fighter pilot, are just amazed and impressed. And if you weren't careful, you could really get a big head about it. But they just love the idea of a fighter pilot. I don't know if it's Hollywood. I don't know if it's the news. I don't know what it is. But I enjoyed telling people about it, and I always did, all throughout my nearly 25 years. And as I got ready to retire, I had two thoughts. One was, there's a lot of people out here, out there who like this kind of thing. And number two, I don't want to just walk away and have nothing to do with this you know, again. And so I had become interested in podcasts when I had a small commute, and I got tired of listening to music. So... I started just thinking, I don't remember the lightning bolt moment, but at some point, somehow I started thinking, wait, there's nothing out there to share this with people. You know, the people who I had a chance to impact prior to that were lucky enough, I guess, if I could say that without sounding arrogant, but they were lucky enough to meet someone like me and we were able to talk about it and they enjoyed it. Well, what if I made it available and anyone who's seeking it could find it and listen? So that's what I did. I started an internet radio show. I wanted it to be immediately identifiable to what it is. So I called it the Fighter Pilot Podcast. But in reality, it's about military aviation. It's about people. It's about the aircraft and the weapon systems and the missions. And so it's not just about fixed wing fighter pilots. I am working right now with a friend of mine who is a helicopter pilot, and I'd like to have a show on helicopters. So I wanted people to understand what it is. And it's just a way of sharing this world with people who didn't have a chance to do it. I have episodes on what ejection seats are and how they work. I have one on landing on aircraft carriers. Actually, I have several on that one. And I am just looking for people who have great stories to tell and can explain whether it's the missile systems or the various other you know, radar or whatever systems that we use. And I answer questions and I just try to give what I think the people would want if they were to meet me and we were to sit at a bar or something and talk about it. The response has been overwhelming, Robert. People say, I can't believe there's someone doing the show finally. I love it. It's great. Thank you. And, and I try to you know, play it off. You know, hey, it's an amateur show. I'm not a trained radio personality, but I'm trying to get better. But I answer questions on the show. I bring guests on and they help me answer questions. And I just try to give them what I think they would want or what I might want. And most of them love it. I haven't heard too many people say, oh, you suck. Go do something else, which is good. If they think it, they just didn't bother to tell me. But the two target audiences really love it. One is, hey, I wish I could have done this, but you know, I didn't have the vision or I was colorblind or life got in the way. And then the other group is the young men and women who want to go do this and are looking to get as much information in advance as possible. And I feel now that even though I started this as a hobby, that it's my obligation to serve people in this way because I feel I can. And you know, I don't want to say I've created drug addicts, but I've created people who enjoy listening. And so I have to keep giving them what they want now. And I enjoy doing it because 
let's face it, who doesn't like to be, you know, felt as important. So it, it's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed the journey. Well, when I discovered it, my initial response to it was, oh my God, finally. And I was like, okay. why hasn't this existed for such a long time? And here on my show, um, part of what I wanted to do with the Go All In podcast was share military stories and share veteran stories and give people perspective of what it's like to be in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force and different militaries as well. And I've been really lucky to be able to do that. I've had a couple of fighter pilots on my show, an F-18 pilot, an F-111 pilot. I had a fellow paratrooper on the show as well. I've got a couple of commandos and special forces guys coming up in the next couple of months as well. Now, I've had you as well from another military as well. One of my mates in Germany was in the German infantry as well. So he's coming on the show shortly as well. So it's a real pleasure for me to be able to share those experiences in exactly the same vein as what you're doing there. So it's my pleasure to be able to help you amplify that message and to get it out there and share it. And we're lucky too. We have a younger audience in the Go All In show as well. So hopefully the listeners out there that are interested in aviation, particularly military aviation, will hear your message and pick it up. Where can people find your podcast? Well, we are at fighterpilotpodcast.com. We also are on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and I'm probably missing, but I think there's even some platforms running the show that I didn't make an effort to do. I think they just picked it up and somehow pull it into their sites. So I think just about anywhere you can find podcasts such as the excellent Go All In podcast, you should be able to also find the Fighter Pilot podcast. And, you know, I would love to have any of your listeners come check it out. I don't want to pull them away from you, Robert, but if they like what they hear, they can reach out to us. We have an email address. It's questions, plural, questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. So if they want to ask questions, we can address those on future shows. But yeah, we're always looking to get more people interested. And right now, I'm glad to say that it's not just a way to you know, put ads in front of you. It is a self-sponsored show right now. I'm fronting the costs. I do have people that help on Patreon, which is a social media type site where people can pay to help out artists and also gain access to exclusive content. So that keeps the show going. I'm not quite caught back up to the initial expenses, but that's okay. I'm not doing it for the money. And, you know, I just enjoy sharing this with people. It's just another way of serving. I think people who do what you and I did in service, Robert, we're, we're stuck with serving. We, we don't know how to do anything else. I, I don't think we, we have to serve people. I love it. Well, I'll make sure that all of those links are in our show notes and I'll make sure your socials are there as well. And that's it for this show. If you haven't already subscribed to the Go All In podcast, if you could pop on over, open up your favorite podcasting app and hit that subscribe button. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. And if you didn't, leave us a review as well because we always like to improve. Well, thank you so much, Jello, for coming on the show, mate. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Bye for now, mate. You're welcome, Robert. It was my pleasure to be here today.